Hello. <laughs> Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. It sounds like Merlin. you just fell down some stairs, maybe carrying some cakes. Seven strawberry <laughs> pies. I used that was my favorite. I used to love that one. He had the chef's hat, and then he fell down the steps. That, he fell down the steps. He should get help with that. Maybe he maybe lost he lost all those pies. He lost all the pies. You think he was a sole entrepreneur? I do. I do. I think he was, and he was so proud of his pies. He was announcing his pies. He was a pie entrepreneur, not not, not cereal, but pie. Yeah. He was working on his own. Now, was, do you think that was side hustle? Or was that his main jam? He he would definitely be doing a TED Talk today. I think he was trying to start a small business. I think he was proud of his pies, and he just couldn't navigate those stairs in it. He was proud of his pies. And yeah. and like, okay, so this is, okay, sorry. Hi, I'm oh, pushing 60. When I was a child, <laughs> there was a TV show called Sesame Street, and it was great. And um and one of the bits, they did a lot of counting. Ha, ha, mm -hmm. ha. Um, they did a lot of counting. And one of them, that there was a baker man wearing a chef's toque, and... If memory serves, he did fall down some steps yes, while he's carrying although, his pies and counting how many pies he was carrying. Although now I just talk about, uh, you're almost gonna 60. For, you're gonna for this? No, talk about almost 60. I'm remembering it maybe incorrectly as an electric company bit. Oh, it might've been electric company. You're, you're totally right. Well, now here, okay. Pies. So here's the thing I'm going to mention and get ready. Everybody tune out for a minute. This is going to get real obscure. Is there any chance you've ever seen on TV or clips of the Paul Lind Halloween special from the mid seventies, probably well, seventy five six? Oh no, you're right. It is Sesame Street, and he is wearing a chef's hat. I haven't looked at he, it yet, but it will almost definitely. You will probably hear the audio at the beginning of this recording. He does fall down the stairs. Okay, now here's the thing. Paul Lind, yeah. who's a little campy sometimes, did yeah. a Halloween special that I'm gonna pin to nineteen. It was definitely not before 75. It was probably 76. It had Margaret Hamilton, Great the Wicked year. Witch mm -hmm. from Wizard of Oz, and it had Witchy Pooh from H.R. Puff and Stuff. Okay. And it was yep. in a castle, a really kind of, um, the word we used back then was flamboyant. It was in a yeah. flamboyant castle, and the musical Liberace's guest- Liberace's castle. John, how do you imagine that I know it couldn't have been before 1975? Because the rock band Kiss came out and played Detroit Rock City. Oh wow! There it is. Get up! It couldn't have been. It couldn't have Get been down. after everybody's going to leave Seventy-eight because they would have been playing something else. Oh, because and the cat, the back. cat would have been out. They would have been. Was that the Elder? Seventy-eight was not. Okay, look, listen, everybody, tune out. Look, talk about listen. getting canceled. Stop. Look and listen. Stop. Okay. <laughs> Yes. Um, I don't think 1978, in my memory at least, was a particularly high point for kiss that, that's i want to say around dynasty or and better but do you remember when they did i was made for loving you it's kind of I a do. disco song i do i my uh peak kiss was 77 for me Ugh. 77 75, wait, no. 75 to 77 was a hell of a run and 74 once you get into it the deeper cuts earlier are great well you know but you're uh, uh you're you're too older than me right so 77 was i would have been not yet 10 yep Yep, it was, the Star, summer, it was the Star Wars year. That was the Star Wars year. And that was the year that the, that Kiss Army really took over. And Marvel made the school. comic. Remember the Marvel Kiss comic book that had sure uh, the blood of Kiss in the ink? I sure do. And I decided in that moment, in that time, that I was, you know, because you always got to pick a side. Oh, 
A hundred percent. And a lot of these are fake, but they were real at the time. Like Beatles versus the Stones is asinine for so many reasons. But like, you got to be like, I mean, what what are some of the other famous, oh, obviously Blur and Oasis, who cares? Blur's better. Um, Oasis is terrible. Um, Sorry, I'm going to really get, oh boy, this is the one. John, this is going to be my January of uh, 2021. Here it is. Merlin stands his ground and says Oasis is terrible. I don't think there are that many. I just hope they don't live forever. If you know what I'm saying, that feel that awful <laughs> about it <clears throat> that you're really going to get yelled. Yeah, but you've got to pick a side. Happen. Okay, here's another one from 1977. Are you into Star Wars or into Star Trek? Uh, right. I remember that very much. I remember you needing to pick, and I refused to pick in that one. I was mm-hmm. like, they're so different. Bob and David, so Star different. Wars versus Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Oh yeah, I don't. I won't pick. I think seventy-seven was the year, at least in my recollection. Recollection. It's early, John. I got a lot going. ADD Mondays. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Chris Christopherson could write a really good song about me. ADD uh, morning coming down. Um, I, I, I feel like seventy-seven and seventy-eight. That arc of fifth grade for me was the year Kiss tipped from like you know this is like going to be like a judas priest level of you're not allowed to listen to this scary music to like mm-hmm. they really were one doesn't like to put it in these terms but marketing to me pretty much yeah, to childs to childs and being in comic books is a clue yeah the, right. they weren't as big as big hostess in terms of you know ben franklin and kool-aid and stuff like that but kiss was marketing to us and uh it it, it worked because they still felt very dangerous to me I, in that moment when kiss kiss army, you know, like the kids in my school were putting kiss army patches on their denim jackets. And I've always, you know, I've always been a little bit of a contrarian, even then, even at eight years old. No, you weren't. (coughs) This episode of Roderick on the line is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com slash Super trained friends, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. You can stand out with a beautiful website, you can engage with your audience, and you can sell anything, your products, content you create, you can even sell your time. This is true. This is new, and it's true, and it's amazing. It's Squarespace. Okay? All right, well, maybe maybe you're out there, well, what some people call creative. I, I, I would call, I would not use that word. I would say people who make things, right? But, but maybe have a lot, that's what a lot of us do, and you need a website for that. Squarespace wants to help. And, you know, it's bringing together a lot of the old and the new in a way I find very invigorating. Remember blogging? Does anybody remember blogging? Well, you can create a community on your Squarespace website with a fully integrated commenting system that supports threaded comments, replies, and likes. You can use their powerful blogging tools to categorize, share, and schedule your posts as well. This is amazing. This is like stuff from the future where we all will spend the rest of our lives. You know, uh, you may, may know this. This is huge. This is, this is huge. All Squarespace sites are optimized for mobile. That means that the, the content on your pages will automatically adjust so that your site looks great on any device or dingus. That used to be an entire se- separate career. Squarespace does that for you. Uh, maybe you want to save time with uh, cross-posting. You want to get your message out there. Well, it's built right in. Squarespace can auto-post your content to Twitter, Tumblr, or Facebook, personal or brand pages. All post entries and images are optimized and tagged. So descriptions and titles will be correct wherever you are posting. You know, and let me just put in my own personal word for uh, for Squarespace. It's like my friend Marcus says, you know, you can pay me to talk about it, about it, but you can't pay me to like it. Well, I like it and I'm going to talk about it. So, you know, can't two things be true, right? I've used Squarespace for a very long time. And in fact, you are using it right now. I mean, definitely over 10 years. Roderick on the Line, our podcast that you're listening to right now, 
is hosted on Squarespace. And that's over 10 years. That's a very long time. You, you could have a child that's almost done with elementary school at this point. Mine's older than that. So, you know, it's, it's horrible, you know, having a kid. But Squ- Squarespace can't help with that. It's not their problem. They want to build it, uh, build it beautiful is what they say. <laughs> so right now, do me a favor. Go and head, head over to uh, squarespace.com slash supertrain. You can get a free trial. Okay, free trial. No credit card required. You go in there. When you're ready to launch, right? You're ready to take it and put it live. Push the big red button. I don't know if there's a big red button. Uh, terms and conditions apply. Use the offer code SUPERTRAIN, and that's going to save you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Once again, please, squarespace.com slash SUPERTRAIN. Offer code SUPERTRAIN. They've been great to us. They're going to be great to you. Um, and our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Roderick on the line and all the great shows. I decided. That I was all about Queen. Oh was, my God! Well, of course, that's um, news of the world. That's news of the world. Oh my and God! I, I was I was all about Queen. We are the champions. Oh my God! And uh, bicycle. I guess that was a year <laughs> later. But yeah, um, no, I totally agree. And they were, like, we will rock you. Will come on. We will rock you. Yeah. Oh my God! That was sure that was like attack. that was like Frozen when my kid was in kindergarten. Like right, every kid, every, every kid. kid loved Queen. Oh my God! Yes, John. Yeah. So, I, so when the other kids would be like kiss, and they'd do their kiss army, like ah, I'd be like, we will, we will rock you, and I'd be, you know, like I don't know, I didn't even care that much. But then when the kiss solo, when they all had their solo records, oh, but you did get New York Groove. Yeah, and which I mean, is a you, really, I mean, that's just a very good song, but the solo albums, and then they were in cutout until I think, let me check, last week. Anyway, then I was, then I was done with Kiss. From that point on, I was just like, meh. And, you think and it I, jumped the shark a little bit? Yeah, and I would fight anybody about it. And then in the grunge years, fast forward to 1993, all those grunge dudes oh, yeah. in Seattle, they were all Kiss fans. But it's like Husker Du, where it takes time to go, wait a minute, this was just crunchy pop music yeah 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 yeah. right 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 not well, just not just is, beth but i mean it's like big star you know everybody right everybody had to confront the fact that yeah big star was just um it was like uh, if well, tennessee did the kinks it was just the posies but uh <laughs> but uh but yeah so then i had to go through that all again sitting in these grotty bars in 1992 getting in fights with guys about kiss and i was I like mean, kiss i gotta say like they did the whole well they had an album called unmasked where they yes, were still wearing makeup. 1984, they they did put out that video with "Lick It Up," and you're like, "Oh, that's Lick what they look up. like." Gun, 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 gun. That was like a real Mike Lick Anthony bass, bass line. Yeah, they're garbage, and they and when they took their their uh, paint off, you realize, oh, these guys are just like New York electricians. Well, they, or like you ever, there's that documentary pipes. about Twisted Sister. That's really yeah. good, and also you kind of can't like help but love. What's that? They also look like electricians. Like oh. <laughs> we were watching the basketball game last night, and the guy who's the really good player for the Mavericks, uh, Luca Jokic or something like that. Yeah, every time he's on screen, he's always really injured. But but Madeline and I are both like, man, he really looks like a guy who's about to get fired from Home Depot. <laughs> the the greatest the, the greatest line I ever heard from a stage was I saw Billy Joel in at Madison Square Garden. <gasps> one of his helicopter in MSG one shows. One of his helicopter MSG shows. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. Where <sighs> he was we the lights came up and we were standing there trying to get ourselves oriented. The guy that I that invited me to go to the show, he had these seats that were like right in the front. We were backstage for a little while. It was he was in the music industry and it was 
pretty incredible. But when the lights come up, we stand up out of our chairs and are kind of brushing the, you know, the dander off and just like, what do we do now? I guess we right. got to, you know, and everybody's milling around. There's all the ozone in the air. And he says, you know what? He's already airborne. I read, I, like, I read a really Whoa. good article slash interview with him about that. And I don't know, it's, it's considered fashionable to make fun of Billy Joel, but for our yeah. crew, but yeah. I do respect the guy. I think the guy's pretty, I think the guy's been through some shit Yeah, and he's pretty straight up in a way I'm, that I, like, he's really returned to his, like, I'm just, I'm just the Catholic uh, guy from um, Long Island kind of thing. Well, and that's the thing. I, you know, I'm a super on the record Billy Joel scoffer. That's okay. Uh, and uh, and I went to this show in the same way that I go to sixty percent of shows, which is somebody's like, "You want to go to the show?" And I'm like, "Meh, sure." Why? why am I going to turn down going to see Billy Joel and Madison Square Garden? No, of course Wait, I'm did not. You just happen, I'm sorry, but you just happen to be in New York City. I was in New York City yeah, as New York I City. as I used to do, and the guy was like, "Hey, what are you doing tonight?" And I was like, "I don't know, you know, this, that, and the other." And he was like, "Want to go see Billy Joel?" And I said, "Yes, I do." And I was talking that whole time in this voice. But anyway, we go, and and of course, <laughs> of course, I know every single song. Of course, every note. you do. That of album course. that came out in the mid '80s, his first greatest hits collection. Yeah. it was on a cassette. Out of Airbnb, we went to like eight years ago, and it was all I wanted to listen to the whole time. Wow! I, you know, Hall and now my kid is super greatest into hits Billy Joel. like that for me. The Hall and the first time I heard Hall and Oates' greatest hits was in the '90s, like the mid '90s. Somebody was playing it in a in a in a vegan bar. I remember sitting at the bar. Is that of the alcohol has animal products? Uh, no, no, no. It was like, you know, wheatgrass juice shots and like oh, wow. barely steamed vegetables type Ooh. of thing with tahini sauce. It was very popular uh, you know, in, in Seattle for a little while. It was called it's the Gravity Bar. And it was like everybody in there was super modern, but they were yeah. also all talking about their colons. Mm. And I remember sitting there and listening to Hall & Oates' greatest hits while, while my wheatgrass juice shots were being prepared. And it was hit after hit after hit. Oh. I, I couldn't believe it. I was Tw like, twice yeah. a year. I just burned through I mean, for me. It's YouTube and like for those videos of like private eyes, yeah. um, um, kiss on my list. And don't, don't, what song is that? Don't you got, it might be hard to handle. You make my dreams come true. You make my dreams come true. Those three, like in particular, the, they, they had that run, you know? Uh. Yeah. And you know, they're almost always pictured left to right. Did you know that? Yeah, I did. Somebody, somebody told I me probably about, said that. Maybe that was yeah. you. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, Billy Joel. Billy Joel. He he plays uh, th whatever three hour set or whatever. It's all amazing. He gets Sting up there at one point. John oh, Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> John Cougar Mellencamp joins him. Oh come on! And this is when John Cougar is is married to America's sweetheart Meg Ryan. So Meg Ryan's there. Whoa. And so we're standing around backstage at one point and it's like sting and Meg Ryan and John Cougar and me and, and this guy, Bill, we Billy Joel's nowhere around, but then he does this incredible show. Then he's in a helicopter, then he's on a hovercraft, but at one point he he's, you know, and he's very casual. He's very cool throughout the whole show. You cannot help but love him. Yeah. And at one point he says, not bad for a guy who looks like a plumber from Long Island. And yeah, and the crowd goes wild. And because everybody in the audience also is a plumber from Long Island. Yep. 
And I'm like, that's his core demo. You know what, man? Yeah. And you know who else looks like a plumber from Long Island? Everyone in Kiss, everyone in Twisted Sister, John Syracuse. John Syracuse. Big, big Billy Joel fan. Joe Pernice looks like a plumber from Boston. He does look like a Boston. He's got the jaw. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the whole time I toured with the Pernice brothers, I I was always like, if Joe Pernice looked like anybody else, this they would be the biggest band in America. But he looks like he was. He looked more like an Avet brother. Yeah, he looks like he he he's a carpenter on this old house, and he plays into it like he leans into it. Right? Mm-hmm. He could have done something else. He could have whatever teased his hair, worn a flashy shirt, but he was like, "No, I'm a carpenter, and and I carpened songs mm-hmm. instead of houses." And it was All like the working girls are fine. Yeah, yeah, but his songs. Oh, you know what? You know what it was. There's such be- his bridges. He almost his songs almost always have this. His songs that I love a lot have this bridge that's almost identical to song to song in a way like early Beatles songs are. But he does this relative minor thing, like you know this, this B minor kind of thing on the bridges that just always breaks my heart. It's like scientifically designed to just tear me apart. It's a heartbreak. Yes, yes. You don't they, talk about though. Be, I mean, that sounds silly to say, but do you know what I mean? Spoon. They should have been at least as big as spoon. Oh man! Yeah, well, and also like they were, so sharp. but they're but like this happens all the time to bands. In my estimation, anyway, I'm frequently blown away by bands that maybe I didn't even hear at the time, especially in the early '80s. Um, there were these periods of, in power pop. We're like, oh, it's a one-hit wonder. I hate that phrase. But like, oh, it's this band that did this one thing. We're like, Shoes. Or like, you know, from Illinois. Or like, you know, the, the, the what's it called? The Ruby News. Like, anyway, all the all these bands that you might have heard on a compilation. Or like fucking Tommy Keene. You'll hear these mm-hmm. bands and it's like, how did they never crack further into my consciousness? And mm-hmm. I felt that with the Pernice Brothers. When mm-hmm. I first heard the one with the bird on it. Which isn't a Portland record, I don't think, but the one I think that might be the one with Working Girls seven thirty, that's that record. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The world's mm-hmm. too much or something. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a Morrissey album. Mm-hmm. The world won't end. What's it called? What's the yeah, one I'm thinking know. of? I have no idea. But it's that it's one of those things where it's like it, and it's so beautifully crafted and produced. It's yeah. it is kind of maybe too smooth, maybe for some people, but like it always blew me away. Were they good live? I don't I don't recall. Were they good live? Oh, they were so good. They were one of the they were one of the very few bands that I ever spent every night standing at the side of the stage watching them work, trying to figure out how they were doing what they were doing. Magic, like not a surf was the, the the other one that I just never missed a show. I mean, you know, I'm playing with them night after night, but I yeah. never missed a set because I I, lo- I, I love Matthew's too much voice. To learn. I love Matthew's voice so much. After the first record and their like, you know that weird again one hit wonder thing then they did the hyperspace record mm-hmm. and the, you know hands up who thinks it's now you know that that one song mm-hmm. and it's like that song should have been fucking huge and he could choose to use that voice to cut glass but instead he uses it to make delicious pudding i fucking love matthew cause's voice so goddamn much and that I was very handsome. He's a very handsome guy. Yeah, you know Matthew also very beautiful. I'm. I, I've, He's a kind. He I've, seems kind. I've told all the stories I think about about not a surf that there are to tell. But I'm a little mad right now. Oh no, I'm a little mad. We've DM'd a little, and he seems really nice. Oh, he's is, the he, best. is he being caustic with you? No, oh, is he, no, tur- no. Is he turncoat? There, no, there's absolutely no nothing caustic about him. There, he's not a turncoat Matthew at all. Matthew caustic. Mm. 
he is a, you know, he's a lovely man. He lives in England and, um, and they're going out on tour right now. And lately I have to say Merlin that I've been on Twitter a lot. John, this is not moving in the right direction, honey. Following the war in, in Ukraine. Mm. And it's, and it's bad, uh, because there are still some people that I follow that are not talking about the war in Ukraine. Andy Levy, the, uh, the, uh, journalist, uh, Mike Liam Black, Ken Jennings, you, you know, like there are a few mm. people I follow mm. and I have started commenting jokes. John, I feel like, like uh, we've talked about this. Well, we have, and it's bad. It's okay. bad. Cause, Cause, then, cause when you comment. You let people know, I think that's previously stipulated, people become aware. I think this is especially true on Facebook where they're like wanting to say like, you know, not just that you took a shit, but like how it went and like, mm. have you, John just took a shit. Like, but on Twitter, like now people know you're there, right? Well, and so no, it, it hasn't become, nobody's like come at me here. There's no, there, but what's happening is I'll, uh, because I'm only following a few people that are making jokes. Like, mm. I don't want to comment on Ukraine stuff because it's like, what do I know? I'm just a looky loo. But somebody makes a little joke and I'm like, lol, ha, here's the thing, you know, mm-hmm. like weird Twitter. Nah, nah. Yep, yep, and, yep. But then what in a split second, I'm right back to, well, how come they haven't faved my comment yet? Oh no. Oh, how John. come, how come no one has yeah. said a funny thing in response to my funny thing? And now we're in a funny thing back. I and thought forth. we were here to play. Remember, like in the old time, on the Does old anybody days? remember laughter? Because that's what it used to be like. <laughs> I commented on a Jason Isbell tweet, mm. and he faved my comment okay. right away. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like, sweet. I, I He po- posted a picture There's of an that amp. that poisonous dopamine <laughs> I was looking for. <laughs> that's right. He posted a picture of an amp, and I said, whoa, cool amp, bro. And he was like, fave. And I was like, yeah. But then I, I did another one and nobody liked it. And, you know, and, and Urbaniac didn't like my thing Mm. that I, where I liked his thing. And I was like, oh no, this is awful. It happened so fast. And so I had to start like mute, 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 mute all the people that I used to know and like, because I can't stop. Like I, I, it's like, I'm a, it's like, I'm a, I'm a, a weird guy peeping in their window somehow yeah you are you're a little bit like the guy in the creepy meme and then i then something i don't remember what it was took me to instagram Mm -hmm. and i was i was there and the first post i saw was dan benjamin riding a pink pony Mm. oh he sent that to me in a message with no context (laughs) yeah he didn't do that to me which i know would be hard for you to believe but it was on instagram and i made and i put a comment on there and i thought it was a Mm. funny comment i was like yeah you made a funny and then I went to the next thing and it was like Duff McKagan standing with Steve Jones at some, at some sex pistols. Sex, thing. Oh, cause they're doing their TV show. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, I know those guys right on. And then the third thing I saw was somebody else I know that was doing something cool. And by the time I'd gotten to 20, just 20, like the first one minute of scrolling. I was like, what am I doing with my life? All the, all my friends are doing such cool stuff. They're like in the sex pistols and stuff and I'm just nobody and I'm doing nothing. Oh, John, come on. And it was just, it happened that fast. And what's Uh. great is, what's great about it is that it was so clearly completely connected to the, to the app, right? Like I felt fine. 
and then I logged on the app, and then I didn't feel fine. And that's all you need to know. Like, that's all I need to know. How, I was wait, there I'm sorry, for, how, how do you mean the app? How do you mean? Well, I mean, it's just social media. Like, I was fine. And whatever it is that I saw is irrelevant. Oh, like you entered into the, you entered into that world and sort of, you were sort of sucked back in before you realized it. And it, and, it, and I immediately felt awful. Yeah. It was like walking yeah. into a bar and you're in there for five minutes and you're like, I feel terrible. And it doesn't matter why. What matters is leave this bar. Like don't go into a bar, stay there for five minutes. You feel terrible. And then try and solve the problem. Like there's no reason to be in this bar. Yeah. But it's so, oh my God, it's so hard right now in my life. I'm, I am, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Merlin. Yeah, no, no, I'm, come I'm on. Oh, we're, we're talking about Kiss. No, 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 I, I, no, uh, no, no, no. I can't even talk about Kiss. What it's about so Billy weird. Joel? No, can't talk about Billy Joel. Oh, mm. the problem was. I like that song Zanzibar. There's Matthew Cause okay. on Instagram. Okay. And he's like, we're going on tour. And he, so here's the thing. We opened for Not A Surf, Long Winters did, mm -hmm. on the national tour, the first half of the national tour to support Let Go, their big Barsook release. Which is, which was which had, sort of uh, a, a, break, a breakout in, it was a, a, in it its was, way. Right? It made them into indie, an indie band instead of like a failed that, That's the one that's got the band. Fruit Fly, but what was the big yep. hit? Uh, love, uh, Always Love? love? Lo always Love. Yeah. Hey, we'll get you. I've been held back by something. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so we we did that tour with them. And then, of course, we toured with them and played with them a thousand times after. But we never were asked to do a European tour with Not A Surf. Mm. Now, Not A Surf is very big in Europe. Daniel probably has people he likes over there. And they're they get, one of get those, more smokers on the tour, probably. They are the rare American band that can play 20 shows in France. They play every wide spot on the road in France. Oh, that and seems like a to, good place. I've, I've had friends in, not, not playing at that level, but a guy that I went to college with, he had a blues band, and like a, but good, like a rocking, you know, like talking heads and stuff, but blues. And he, they got a following in France. Yeah. Where like they could go and like you've described, you, you've described many times, I guess through Matt or whatever, like having to deal with all the different bookers in all the different places and this particular guy for this one corner of Germany and like, but they developed like, uh, in the same way that like the SST bands had those paths that they would go down in the early eighties. Like mm -hmm. you, you had like a circuit you could play and reliably bring in the amount of people that you needed to sustain your band. Yeah. Well, and we had that in the Netherlands and we had it in Spain. Mm -hmm. The problem for our European tour, and we had it in Germany. The problem was I always wanted us to go to Englang. Yeah. Because you can't be a rock band unless you're big in Englang. And Englang couldn't have given two shits about us. And so I, I so we went to the Netherlands and Talking we went to Germany and Spain. Talking about picking a side, England's very much like that, mods and rockers. Mm -hmm. I think it's still kind of like that. I think oh, the kind of music you like is... At least in my understanding from people I know who've lived there and watching a lot of TV and movies, it is a kind of mutual exclusion where like, if this is the kind of thing that you like, then you must necessarily sort of dislike these other things. 100%. And it's hard to get economies of scale in such a snooty country. Well, and it's weird because they're all about not being posh or being not posh or posh not being, you know, like there's, it's so complicated over there socially mm -hmm. just because it's like, oh, are you, are you... It's not just like, are you a chav or are you a middle class <laughs> <An> person? <asbo. laughs> it's just like by your accent, by the way you your eyebrows waggle. It's just like, oh no, you're the wrong kind. 
And it's like that with bands. Mm. And everybody I talked to agreed, like they either choose you or they don't. And there's mm. nothing you can do about it. You cannot, you cannot big borrow and plead. It's a small world. And if the enemy likes you, then it's a thing. And if they don't, it's, then it's over. Yeah. And, um, and it was always bad to hear that from bands that the English liked kind of like bands that had gone to Japan and had a successful run. They're like, yeah, sorry, man. I don't know. It's just so they like some bands and they don't like others. And it's like, great. Well, that's easy for you to say, but they didn't write like no one Silver Sun or, or cheap trick. It's like, you're like, oh my God, I've heard that they are just, I mean, I think Silver Sun, like their whole career is like Jap well, have been Japanese stuff. And like, obviously cheap trick and Budokan, you know what I mean? There's these certain bands where you're like, I don't know how they made it past the red velvet rope, they but it seems did. like they're in the, in the tribe now. But the thing about France is it's not like England. I, I never got the feeling that the English are such snobs and the French are snobs in different ways, but the French just apparently listening, having listened to the radio mm -hmm. in the car in France, many, many times, I can say that they have terrible, 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 terrible taste in music in mm. France. And so they like certain American bands, but they are never the good ones, except in the case of not a surf. And the reason is that those guys speak fluent French and also they're great. Mm. But so they go on these tours. Well, the long winters played one show in France in our entire careers. What really? That's it. They could not have, they could not have wanted us less. Uh -huh. Every European tour we did, we made a ton of money going around Europe. And then I would go, I did insist that we go to England and spend two weeks there and lose all of our money because everything in England is three times as expensive. They don't give you any perks. And then nobody comes to the show. So, hmm. you know, we, we, we do this month long tour in Europe. We'd all be flush with cash. It would be like, we'd be riding this high. And then I would say, now we're going to England and it would be cold. The rooms would smell like pee. The, it was just, it's a moldy country, but we never even got invited <laughs> to go to moldy France. Country. <laughs> and the one time we played in France opening for Keen at a huge show. And after the show, we were mobbed with fans, you know, like beautiful people. So excited. Why haven't we heard of you? Why, you know, where have you come from? Why don't you play here? And I was like, go to your local, your local mayors and your city councils and tell them to invite the long winners. But not a surf always goes over there and plays these big, beautiful theaters. They play 20 shows in France and Throughout the career of the Long Winters, I would always say, "Why don't you guys take us to France?" Yeah, you know, we go we go to Europe all the yeah. time, but we can't get into France. And if we if we, if went, we, one time, to Fran we went to France, we'd invite you. If we went to France with you guys one time, it would be like then mm -hmm. I could just have a whole you know go on tour there. I wouldn't even have to go to England. Oh. And they, you know, they're big they're big stars, you know, mm -hmm. and. It was just kind of a general, you know, that way that a band has a vibe death cab. When you ask them for favors, they have a real vibe about like, oh yeah, we'll have to talk to our manager. And then you, then mm. is that you a version, again. John, is that a version of Belling Bellinghamming? Well, there's a little bit. Okay. And not a surf New York's you where they're like, yeah, good idea. Yeah. Oh, well, is it like we should get coffee sometime? Yeah. But then what it always came down to was, well, we're trying to take somebody out on this tour that's going to move some units, you know, like we're going to, we're going to take somebody out. You can like stuff. improve your Venn diagram. Cause hopefully the 
it is hoped that the people who are fans of your band will come. But then you could also Venn diagram it a little bit because you got overflow with another band. Kind of like the whole reason you have guests on a podcast is like you bring two worlds together. You bring two audiences. That's right. And but in music, I ha- I tend to think that it's bullshit. You know, like whoever really goes and buys a ticket to see one of the openers, it hardly ever happens. Hmm. Super fans, maybe. And and yes. I guess the logic is, oh, I have seen Not a Surf five times, but they're actually playing with this other cool band, so it's worth it to go a sixth time. Like, I, there's some of that to it. But, you know, the long winners are not chopped liver. You know, we're a big deal. And I was in, I was in German Rolling Stone. You know, we're like not nothing. But no. So, they, John, how, do they say, how do they say Rolling Stone in Germany? Scheiße Rolling. Scheiße Rolling Rocking. Rolling Rocking. Anyway, so we always got a little bit big time to buy them. Like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, well, you know, we'll, t- we'll, yeah, next tour, maybe we'll, we'll think about it. And they never did. They never Ma- thought Matthew about Cause, it. Matthew I don't know if you're listening to the show, but if this is your first episode, I'm very sorry. Yeah, I don't think he does. Okay. And, you know, and the thing is, they were incredibly generous to us over the years. I consider them extremely close. I'm, I love Matthew and all of them to mm-hmm. the very end of their, this is just a professional this is just a little bit of a professional gripe. But it does, but it shades into, but you're getting at something though that's real, which is that it's not, there's the, you know, as uh, we got to credit, Sean, it's a show business, not show friend. Mm-mm. Right. But here's the and thing. Yeah, the friend thing does factor into it because if you can't get along with them or you feel like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I bet you really, when you're in a van or in proximity backstage, like there must be things where like you greatly amplify annoyances, you know, to one another. Well, and we get along with them amazing, right? We, we it doesn't add up because them. you're friends and you're good and you're not chopped liver. I mean, even well, even but, Rolling Rock and Stone agreed. But a lot of times a band doesn't want to bring another band because they're like, oh, we don't want, you know, like you, sometimes that happens and you go, oh, they're afraid of us. Like they're jealous of us. They don't want us to steal their thunder. Like I'm convinced that Eve Barzillet was always mean to me because he felt like the long winters were a threat and I don't think they were. I think, I think Eve Barzillet and Clem Snide are amazing. Their long winters are no threat to them, but live we played some shows together and he was just a snot to me every day. And I was like, why are you such well, a if snot? You've got, if you've got an act and I'm thinking here, something like low or, you know, some kind of a band that's kind of a mood band a or mood, a feel, yeah. a feel band. And like, but you wouldn't want, the fucking champs opening up for you because well, no, they'd, but, they'd be walking off the stage and people would be losing their shit. And then it's like, Oh, this band comes out and like plays it, you know, 10 decibels for three hours. Right. And that, that that's understandable, but like the Decembers have a total universe creation vibe and they never had any problem with us going on mm-hmm. before them and playing like the, like the, <laughs> like the terrible who, like we're, we're <laughs> the terrible. We were the terrible who, and they were like, "Okay, that was fun." Now, pirates. Here's some accordion. But so I'm on Instagram. Sorry, the concertina. Day. They probably have. <laughs> me, 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 no, it wasn't even a concertina. It was a custom-made instrument, only oh, played like by her. the she Roma. Seemed, she seemed nice. And that Chris guy, they both seem so nice. Girl. Oh, they're all very nice. Matthew is on Instagram. And he's like, "I'm so excited to go on tour." You know, the bus is picking me up tonight, and we're going out. We're, and and he lists all the tour dates and it's a long tour. It goes to every wide spot on the road in France. They do a couple of they do a couple of festivals in Belgium. I think they go to Aarhus. I mean, you know, there there's like they they do the thing. Mm-hmm. It's mostly France, but then they do a couple other big shows. 
And he's like, we're so psyched to take our buddy John Vanderslice out with us. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And I'm like, John Vanderslice, you say. Mm-hmm. Oh, Joe, John Vanderslice is going out with you. Now, John Vanderslice has maintained a music career in a way that I have not. He has consistently been putting out records and making- He's got his studio stuff, right? He's got his studio. He makes records. He's out there banging he's, uh, the tambourine. Mr. Mr. Ant, not Mr. Ant. I'm not making fun of him, but I mean, like, he's, he, I don't know. I think he closed one of them, but yeah, he, he had a reputation for being a go-to guy. Well, not just for bands that we like, but for, like, having vintage analog equipment that a lot oh, of people- Oh, he's got it all. Like to record on, yeah. Yeah, he's got all the stuff. He's got every reverb, uh, every, you know, every- He's got a very uh, rare analog, reverb, 80, you got. analog 808. It's very he rare. does. There's he's only got, three ever made. He's got- the toilet is analog in yep. that place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get it, right? Yes. But in terms of moving units, I don't think Vanderslice is moving any more units than me or anybody else because we're all in our 50s now. And and Vanderslice is kind of like um, one of these ambiguously aged, so he might be 90. I don't know. It's he doesn't really appear to hard. It's very hard to tell. Um. He's, he's kind of like, um, he's kind of like that guy on 30 rock that maybe was born in the 1700s. Oh yeah. Kenneth. Kenneth. Well, he might also be an angel like Kenneth. He, I think he might be an angel, but so this was the thing I'm, I'm going down through, uh, through Instagram and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not in the sex pistols. Why? What have I done with my life? Like Mm -hmm. I should have been at least in the sex pistols and all of that stuff is crazy. But then I get to this, like, we're going out on tour and we're taking John Vanderslice. And I was like, I know for a rhubarb, rhubarb. And I know for a fact that he's gone on tour with them in Europe before. Mm-hmm. And so he's getting another one. I he's feel like, another is he a draw around. in France? I feel like. No. Belgium? No, he's not mm-hmm. a draw in San Francisco. Oh, boy. But I mean, and I say that with love. I say love. that mm-hmm. with the ultimate love. None of us are. Who's a draw anymore? Time, time travels lonely. Yeah. I don't think anybody's a draw. a draw. Yeah. One of the things I saw was old uh, Craigy Craig. One of the things I saw in my five minutes on Instagram was Craig. Uh, Craig. Uh, the uh, Hold Steady. The Hold Steady Craig is making a record right now. And he was posting pictures or he's got a record coming out. Mm-hmm. He was posting pictures like, oh, we were making this record. And I knew a bunch of people that were working on the record. And I said, oh, all those guys are all working on records and they're all like, they probably all live in a big house and, you know, and every yeah, it night. it feels they, like you, they pulled the ladder up on the treehouse a little bit, huh? Yeah. And I'm just like, well, and you know, honestly, I haven't put out a record since 2006 <laughs> and. Some good records though. The long winters, where have they been? You know, who's, what is, what even is a long winters? But I'm, but I'm, but. This was the problem. If I had not gone on Instagram, I wouldn't have even known about a not a surf tour, let alone who was opening for them. I wouldn't have known about a hold steady record or a Craig record. I wouldn't have known about the sex pistols thing. I would have been fine. I would have just been here with my finger paints and watching, uh, watching your tree cameras. I would, I'd be watching my tree cameras. Mm-hmm. I built a little trail yesterday. I'm very proud of Hmm. A little switchback. I made a switch. See, I'm trying to. So, what was that for? Like tacking up a hill. So, so the ravine, right? Oh yeah. So my mom, yeah, yeah. So my mom is um, 88, and she's still out in the ravine every day doing stuff. You know, like a little tractor, and she's always been somebody that. 
like my dad, if she tripped on something, she could always kind of do a little roll and pop out of it. You know, she's didn't little, he fall down a hill one time? Yeah, dad. Your dad did, always, but, he, but it was something involving a football game. I remember, yeah, and but he did a roll down a hill, and he, uh, and but he yep. kind of he kind of nailed the land. Yeah, he popped back up, and off we went. And my mom falls down all the time, but you know, it's a forest. And so you fall down in the forest and you, you pick yourself back up, you dust off the, the yeah, bark and the again. beetles. But I was, we were walking around in the forest together well, a couple of months ago mm-hmm. and she went ass over tea kettle. Oh no. And I was like, mom. Um, because it's pretty, this is the idea behind the switchback. It's pretty, it's pretty, uh, pretty steep. And if you go, steep. you're going to keep going. Yeah, there's a lot of steepness. There's a lot of there's a lot of bramble underfoot. And I was like, "Mom, you can't just keep going ass over tea kettle." And she was like, "Well, it's fine." But then she said, "I'm a little bit unsteady." Mm-hmm. And you know, from her, that's quite an admission. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Huh?" So I so I reached over and I broke off a branch, and I was like, "Why don't you start carrying a stick with you?" And so she. You know, the next day she re- she came in and was like, the stick is great. Like, I love the stick. I carry it now everywhere I go. And so she's got a little, her little Gandalf stick. Mm-hmm. But I realized there's a lot, there's a lot in the ravine, a lot of goat trails that I built because it's just the shortest distance between two points. Mm-hmm. But now I, I'm rebuilding the trail system. Mm. So that there's, so that the trails are wide. This will benefit you later, John. If it doesn't benefit you, this is like Syracuse and I like to say accessibility is for everybody. Like, yes. I think in the end, you'll be glad you did this for everybody. I believe so. I believe it might help with that- irrigation. Like if you did it right, it would help uh, avoid, um, you know, uh, erosion. I hope it's going to not impact erosion too badly, but yeah, I do have erosion as part of my trail switchback building. Let's gravity, systems. man. It's a bitch. It is. And I, you know, I use logs to stabilize trails. Okay. Anyway, so I built a switchback yesterday and she came in just before we started recording and she was like, the switchback, it's amazing. So, you know, in that sense, I feel like I'm doing, I'm doing good work in the world. I'm building switchbacks. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not the same as like touring France, but it's, it's, it's own, it's its own thing. Yeah. If you went back to your 16-year-old self, mm-hmm. let's say you, you flew through time. Yep. Time flyer. And there's Merlin Mann, 16, mm-hmm. presumably dressed in a some kind of cadet uniform. 29, 29 uh, inch waist. Incredible. It's so incredible. 29.32. I had a 29 inch waist. 140 pounds. I think I was probably in fourth grade. And you said to that Merlin man, mm-hmm. Hey, it's me, Merlin man, you in your, in your fifties. And we take it for granted that, that, uh, and you can never set this aside when you argue about this with people like Syracuse, but we'll take it as read. I figured out the secret method that do, it doesn't require a month of me convincing myself. Somehow I'm able to come in as me. Now I time traveled back to Newport, Richie, Florida, 1983. And I'm able to like pretty instantly get 16 year old me to accept that that is future me. Yeah. Right. And right. I mean, what, how do you do that? All you have to do well, is say like, I mean, that's the, that's a whole separate game. It's a fun yeah, game, it's but, fun. but for this exercise, it's really about getting back to 16 year old me. Do I have, do I have a message? Is it a warning? Well, a question. 
does 16-year-old you recognize contemporary you as a success? Um, in, some, in, in a handful of ways, absolutely. Um, and then in, cause I mean, I, my expectations were really quite low, so it's kind of almost an unfair question, but the interesting part is of course, the, trying to explain how I got the stuff that would be easy to understand would be hard to understand. And the stuff that's hard to understand would be easy to understand. It would be very hard for 16 year old me, honestly, probably to believe that I've been married. I've been with this woman for 20 years and we got a kid that's the best. I'd be like, yeah, but like, do you play guitar? It's like, yeah, a couple times a month, ball the guitar. It's like, hmm, sounds like a pretty mixed bag. But uh-huh. the fact that I'm not, that I'm not, well, I mean, honestly, like you, we, we, we kid, but we don't. So there wasn't a nuclear war. No, not yet. We're still good. Okay. Right. Well, good. Right. Like if you went to back, back to, let's just say 1983, you QED, a million conversations we've had, wouldn't you be kind of relieved to know that there has not yet been like uh, a nuclear war? I'm not sure. I, I, I was thinking about this a lot last night. I was prompted to think about this by an email mm-hmm. from a friend. And I realized, you know, I've never, as we've talked about many times, I never had a plan. I was, I never had a methodical plan. Right. At 16 years old, I did not have a vision of who I would be or you what had aspirations, steps. but they were somewhat untethered to the stuff you were actually doing. Right. Right. And what I realized was I had an, I, I had a, a vision of, of being 50 that wasn't clear, Mm -hmm. but I knew that in order to be that person at 50, I would have to do some things now at 16 and 17 and 18. Right. That maybe I didn't want to do. Just started that savings account. I, you know, but, but, and in, in a form of it, it is, it is that. Because when it was clear I wasn't going to go to college because I, because I had barely graduated right? and it was, and I hadn't applied. That's the other reason I had not applied to go to college because I had a D minus average. But people around both of us, like they were ready for like the equivalent of high school 2.0. Like I I may not know, of course you always know people who are like, oh, I'm going to be this profession. And then they don't usually, but. Like it's just two quick things. Number one, like you, it, the path for what's next is very unclear. In the early eighties, it's very unclear. If your path is not go straight to college, it's unclear what that path is. And to answer your previous question, so I can close the thread, I would see fifty-year-old me today, and I, I would not think of myself as conventionally successful based on what I. Again, a thousand asterisks here, but sixteen-year-old yeah. me would look at me now and go like, probably. I mean, God, twenty-two-year-old me would be disappointed. I thought I was going to be some kind of Marxist essayist yeah 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 yeah. and like i I would have felt like if the way that i felt my last year of college and the like the year after that before i got a jobby job was very i would have thought that it was very disloyal that the things that i pursued in life that turned out better than worse were just were so boring and like middle class and that i was just becoming like another capitalist burger i feel like if i went back to 38 years old First of all, 38-year-old me would have no trouble accepting that I was I was him, except older, right? If I, like, walked up on 38-year-old me and I was like, hey, guess what? It's you. Uh, <laughs> me then would be like, oh, right, you sure are. And I'd be like, ha-ha, lol, so science fiction. And they'd go, science fiction. 
I think thirty-eight. Don't want to talk about time travel. <laughs> don't talk to me about time travel is what they would say because I think that movie would come out by then. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> they would, if I told them, if I showed them where I am and what I'm doing at fifty-three, I think thirty-eight-year-old me would go, "Huh? Okay. You know? Yeah. Good work." Or like, "I get it. Right? Like you didn't, you didn't go from me here at thirty-eight and like blow anybody's mind, but." You can, you, you continued on, you steadied on right and now you're 53 and it's your, you're, you're the, the version of me wouldn't, that wouldn't I part of you be a little, predict. I mean, not, I'm not, don't mean this as a, as a bit, but like, wouldn't part of you be a little bit relieved that you're still sober and like mostly sound? Yeah. Wasn't think, that ever a worry of like, I wonder if something will happen and I'll end up b- being a person I didn't want to be anymore. Well, this is the thing about 16 through 17, 18. Like Mm -hmm. I was aware that I was going to need what I was thinking last night was I did not feel that in a head to head competition with most of the people that I considered peers that I was going to come out on top because of various problems. I wasn't, um, ambitious. Mm -mm. I wasn't a hard worker. And so if there was, it's like the Hollywood thing. If there are two people up for the same role yeah. and one of them really wants it. That's true for becoming a PA. It's true for everything. I for mean, everything. you've got to have that. I mean, and I don't mean this in the positive way it sounds. You have to have, be hungry and you have to have hustle. And like, you have to be able, well, at least my understanding of like, for example, in Hollywood and in some instances in music, you have to be willing to do stuff that other people are willing to do and more. You're going to have to yeah. be dependable. You're going to have to do it on the right. You're going to have to be so consistent. You're going to have to be, I'm trying to put this positively, collegial. You're going to have to kiss a lot of asses. You're going to have to put up with a lot of shit. I mean, yes. Harvey Weinstein was not the only person of his kind in the world, and it doesn't have to be about sex and Gwyneth Paltrow. There are incredibly abusive users, and that's kind of what makes the system run, whether that's rock or or movies or whatever. And I didn't, <clears throat> I didn't have... I did not have hustle or ambition or, mm-hmm. uh, uh, moxie. And also I wouldn't take any shit and I wouldn't, you know, like mm-hmm. I, and so I, you said, all, you said as much, I think in the very, our, our prototype pilot backdoor pilot or backyard pilot. Oh, why yeah. did I never think to call it that till now? Backyard pilot, the backyard pilot for our show. You were talking about this and like the guys who are trying to steal your copper pipe. And that, yeah. like, how difficult it is to play that game and go, oh, it's cool, it's casual. We'll come out and play this thing for free, even though you know everybody else, every everybody who's like a gaffer or a roadie or whatever is getting paid. But yeah, we sure will come out because it's good exposure. You have you for your whole career, as I understand it, that's not come easily for you, and you didn't want it to come easily for you. But even at sixteen, when I didn't even, <clears throat> I didn't know I was going to be a musician. I thought I was going to be a Marxist uh, uh, columnist, mm-hmm. just as you. Um, but. I knew that I wasn't, and, and, and maybe I was wrong, right? Like I never tried to get any of my writing published because I didn't think it was good. And maybe I was wrong. You know, like a lot of this is, is that I had Mm. bad Intel because I had untrustworthy uh, reporters. And you also had, it strikes me if I could say that you had a very much, um, like we used to joke with you about this, about how I think a career not dissimilar from what you're doing now makes a lot of sense for you. Yeah. Um, and I think you were, maybe it's just cause I was saying it, but also I think you were very re- 
you were very key, keyed into like what wasn't for you, but didn't have a lot of decisiveness and gumption about getting what you thought was for you. But you yes. could say, I'm not a writer. Like, oh, it's funny for me to rewrite this article for this dingling at the believer, but I, I'm not a writer. I'm not an essayist. I'm not an MC. I'm a rock musician. That, and that was a default, right? Right. The, it was, it was like the, the re, re, reversion to the mean or whatever. Like you yeah, could go and, off it a little bit, but you were always going to come back to like, and you were very tough on yourself. You're very critical because if you weren't being the rock musician, I guess that you felt you should be at a point, you would be really hard on yourself and you still are. And that all happened a lot later okay. at, at 17, when I saw that I wasn't going to graduate well, at first I was worried I wasn't going to graduate, but then I, I definitely wasn't going to go to college and everybody that I knew was going to college and they all had a plan, right? They were all going to go to medical school. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And if I just sit here in Anchorage and get a job, um, this is, this, it's the weirdest thing. And I know this is true. It sounds weird to say, uh, it sounds retconny, but I know that it's true. I said, I don't know what I'm going to be when I'm 50. Right. I have no vision of it, but I know that I owe my 50 year old self that I not stay in Anchorage and get a job. Uh huh. And I said, interesting. So, but you're like, you're like, um, Dr. Manhattan with the tachyon interference. Like, you know, there's something out there, but you can't tell what it is. Whereas you might have some clarity about other kinds of things for the same reason. Like I, I wrote this down a little while ago, like if it, almost any point in my life from the age of seven, let's say into probably my thirties, if you said to me quick, who's a 50 year old man, I would oh. have, have one answer and a backup answer. The main answer is Carol O'Connor on all in uh -huh. the family who, for whatever reason, I imprinted on him as my idea. And I don't even know. I think he was 47 when he started that show, which is mind-boggling. Yeah. But he's he's my idea of a 50-year-old man. And the second place, I can't decide if he's 50 or maybe 60, I'm going to say um, Mr. Wilson from Dennis the Menace. That's my idea oh. of what it looked like to be in your 50s or 60s. I think I would have said Robert De Niro in Ronin, but I don't know how old he actually was in Ronin. Hmm. But I, yeah, so so when I first left Anchorage... And did and and hopped freights across America that first year. Yeah, there was a part of me that didn't want to be doing it. Hmm. There was a part of me that just wanted to be sitting around because I'm lazy right. and I'm hungry a lot, uh, and I like sweet things. And you I mean for food, you get hungry. I get hungry for food. I see. But I was doing it because I felt like I owed. It. it was a kind of time traveling where I didn't know what I was going to be at 50, but I felt that 50 year old person, um, watching me and saying, seriously. Oh, now that honestly, like no, no, not a bit, that does sound like something I could very much see you doing is right? like, how, like, how will, how will, how, how, when we say, how will history look at us? Like, how will the history, like by me, how would I look back at this? Would I be, how that's right. Did I make a good decision? Or am I proud of how it turned out in the quote unquote end, which of course is a ridiculous idea. There is no end until there's an end and then it's too late. And nobody cares. Time is a flat circle. Yeah. But I mean, like, seriously, like there is this whole idea of like a thing that I've truly chafed against is that idea of arriving where like there's so many points in my life, whether that was like getting to meet Steve Garvey or getting accepted to college 
Or like like last night, I'm so fucking old that I get in, got invited by my pal and the meat puppets to see them in Soundgarden last night, oh, and I'm so old that I I couldn't go. But oh. like that's arriving. Arriving is oh my god. Derek asked me if I want to come, and he's the nicest guy in the world. And like those are all arrivals, but are they arrivals? Like none of those are arrivals. A, a lot of those are just transferring planes in Chicago a lot of the time. But you know what I mean though. But the, it's that mythology that we've both bought into, in my opinion, of arrival that can be so um so caustic matthew caustic is this idea that like oh you know i i haven't arrived i've never arrived i never will arrive and but with being six whether you're 16 or 30 or 38 you could look at a snapshot let's say you got 15 seconds to look at yourself at x years old like i i mean it's you can't really communicate to people that life you know what what happens while you're making other plans or whatever like that's i'm living life this is this <laughs> i'm doing this i'm not robert de niro i'm not carol o'connor because you were a fucking child who had no idea what it's like to actually be an adult and that's okay that was your job at the time but you know if you looked back in the same way that you would look back and go "Ooh, i wish i handled that differently or i wish i had start bought a cd not the music but the the financial instrument or whatever, right? I mean, it's looking either way is hopelessly clouded, so distorted and so fraught with all of our own emotional um, sort of baggage. It's, it's, and I don't know if it's even that wholesome to do. The time travel aspect was that I was conscious at 17 of my future self looking back at me and being disappointed. Mm, wow. But I was not, but I had no idea who that person was. Right. I had no idea where I was going to end up. And I don't mean disappointed by like your life choices. I mean, I would be sitting in a cafe in the middle of Indiana mm -hmm. and there would be two teenage girls sitting in the booth next to me giggling. And I was 17 and wearing a denim jacket and, and had arrived there on a freight train and they were having uh, fries. And I was conscious of my 50 year old self saying, why don't you strike up a conversation with them? Like you live in such isolation from others and you're walking through. I'm, I'm a little bit adrift here. You, so wait, give me, give me the, the time. Who's seeing what? Like younger you seeing 50 year old you talking to the French fry girls? No, younger me seeing 50 year old me talking uh -huh. to him saying, why don't you go talk to those girls? Oh, I see. Like okay. I was already. You're your own manic pixie dream, John. I was me telling me from the perspective of old me, mm. what old me was hoping I would be as a 17 year old in order that that create the 50 year old that I imagined I wanted to be one day so that the 50 year old that I couldn't see was going to be the person that resulted in whether or not I did talk to these girls, right? Not talking to them produced one 50 year old talking to them would produce a different one. And that 50 year old was advocating from the future to me, like make me a different man by being different now. Oh, you're sort of like the John of Christmas future. John of Christmas future. Yeah. Now, and, now see it only, if you turn something into a fiction, it makes more sense to me because it was sounding a, a lot more, like some combination of predestination and, uh, uh, the, the blunderbuss movie. But now I think I, I think I get what you're saying. But there, there, there could be a bootstrap paradox, but there's something in there where like, it's not just, oh, hello, hey, I'm me from the future. Come with me if you want to live. It's also a certain amount of inspiration or encouragement from a past you in some ways. An in, in, encouragement from a, from a future me 
but that was also a little judgy okay or not judgy but like super hopeful like almost desperate like like um it's the opposite of michael j fox being erased from the photograph it's being (laughs) 16 photographs (laughs) yeah it's it's 16 and holding a blank piece of paper and every decision you make at 16 the the image of the person on the piece of paper becomes clearer and you're making choices that are determining whether that future you is uh, rich or poor, you know, or, or, or happy or sad. And I, yeah, well, I, content or restless, like in yeah, any of right. those kinds of things where you, you but the you restlessness have, of your vision of that person is actually influencing your decision, whether or not, you know, like, like I always knew I would be restless. It's an untrustworthy voice too. The one that's casting back through the mists of time. Mm, and possibly just impossibly distorted. Like anytime you try to look through time, there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of crack crystal going on. What's nuts right now though, at 53 is I do not, I don't think have a 70 year old me looking over my shoulder. Now, I don't mm. think at any point in my life did I, did I think, what am I going to be like when I'm 70? Cause who cares? You know, like you're 70, you're 70. Well, and there's much to, less distinction amongst, I mean, at least in your stupid, my stupid stereotypical view of anybody in the future. It's like, again, how could I reduce, you know, 49% of, of 50 year old men in America or like, you know, 50 year olds in America to Carol O'Connor. That's insane. Right. That's a TV show. That's an actor. Right. Like, but, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's sometimes difficult to, the, the, the subtlety will be lost on younger you and probably also on older you. Cause you never give yourself credit for the context of a time. You always, we look at the results of things and then I guess excuses tend to be something that we make because of context, but we also, we don't give ourselves a lot of breaks because of context. Context like is how you felt means so much. It wasn't just poor judgment. I mean, that's like blaming a dog for not inventing calculus. It's just not, not, it's out of scope. I wonder what, if I walked around here and, and showed my switchback trails to my 17 year old self and said, you know, this is what you're doing at 50. Three, this is what you like best. And mm-hmm. you're able to do this and be fine. Um, and, um, and it doesn't result in any, you're not, the, you're not famous for it. And it's, and you're not living mm. in some kind of Johnny Depp South of France, uh, like drug fuel. You were an encyclopedia fan. And we yeah. all know the inverted pyramid style of journalism and writing, which is you, you start at the most general, you get specific. And this is one of those things they'll always talk about at like, you know, in the, in the sort of like, you know, the, the, in the world of journalists and news, it's always like, well, the first paragraph of his obituary has just been written, right? Yeah. Like, oh, we just found out that, you know, Mark felt his deep throat. Well, that changes a lot about the Encyclopedia Britannica entry or world book for Mark Felt, right? And for John Roderick, right? Isn't that kind of part of it? Is it's like, well, the, you if you'd said to 16-year-old you, how would you feel about a first paragraph that includes making a trail so your mom won't fall down? But there wouldn't be. That's the thing. There wouldn't be that in your obituary because it isn't because it doesn't qualify. Hmm. Like I loved throughout my whole life, right? I've I've been a follower of the myth of Hemingway. And when I was in high school and the, and my first year of college, I believed in the, the rock and roll myth of it. 
And then as happens with, with middle brow kids in college, I realized, oh, the myth of Hemingway is a myth. And then I was into demystifying He's Hemingway. incredibly brittle, man. <laughs> and then after I demystified Hemingway for a few years, then I was like, actually, you know, like this, that, this story, that story, and that story are all great stories. And who cares you can, about You can myth. still write in a very terse and muscular way without having that many animal skins in your house. <laughs> and then, you know, I went to Key West and I was like, I actually do want to see the place. You know, I do want to walk I was around to see the his desk. And then I was in Pamplona and I saw the running of the bulls. And of course I'm thinking about it, but I, but you put this, the, this story of Hemingway together in your mind as a young person. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's one of the many, many stories, like the story of Eddie Van Halen that just follows you along, right? You've got the story of Eddie Van Halen, I'm sure in some desk drawer somewhere. And there's that wonderful uh, guitar player interview with him on the first tour. We talked about that, right? Yeah. Like in the very early days, but. Yeah. Yeah. You've got, you do, you have an idea of this and like, that's how people become iconic as we keep shaving off the complexities and full truths to come up with something that can, you can make into a statue that doesn't move. That's but what then, we do. Uh, the other day, not, I mean, just a month or two ago, I watched that Ken Burns Hemingway documentary, mm. which is multiple nights. Hmm. I didn't know that know? existed. I don't think I've seen that. Well, and what's nuts and I'm, I'm no spoilers, Yeah. but the, the one spoiler I will offer. <laughs> how it ends. <laughs> Is yeah, how it is. Is that <laughs> oh, Papa? You know, watching the first episode, Ugh. I was like, "Wow, this is really un like." Is Ken Burns slipping? This is really uncharacteristically hagiographic. He oh, just and this is like, is this like ambulance driver or World War One stuff? Yeah, he's just loving him. He's so handsome. He's yeah. so everything. You know, it starts off and and after the first episode, I was like, "Man, I don't. I've spent so much time with Hemingway. I don't need to just sit and and chug." a giant sugar pop version of this story. But by the last episode, Ken Burns kind of masterfully starts off with like Hemingway in his most beautiful. And by the end, it was the first time I'd ever in the whole period uh, in my whole life of, of understanding this writer. It's the first time I ever said, wow, he killed himself. And it makes sense to me now. Like, it no longer feels after like. after and I'm this is I don't I apologize if this is triggering or unkind or tough for anybody. Yeah, sorry about that. But you know, it's it also just what I said earlier, and I'm not trying I'm trying not saying this to slag the guy. There's a part of us that for for people like us who are lifetime pussies, it always there is something slightly gratifying to realizing that somebody who was obviously like a bully who acted tough was somebody who was maybe even more but that all so much of their aggression. And their constant need to prove themselves and get trophies you can hang on a wall and all that, all the, all the white ribbons, as you say. They're, I don't say it's gratifying, it's sad. Because like you want to say to that person when they're 12, hey, knock it off, man. Like, stop being a bully. Stop trying to prove yourself to everybody. You know, and, but like, I think he did that his whole life. And there was something from which maybe that he felt like he couldn't escape. And that might have been himself. Well, but the, the but there and his expectations a, maybe there's a lot more going on too. I mean, he he sustained a lot of closed head injuries and and he was in a lot of pain that wasn't just oh, that related sucks. to him being a dick, you know. And okay, and um and it was just it was it was clarifying for me because it felt I don't it was the first thing that I'd ever in in a lifetime of trying to humanize Hemingway. It was the first thing that really humanized him in a way that was heartbreaking. And, and it felt like, um, I, that I needed to have seen it. Hmm. It was kind of important for me 
in the way that a great documentary or a great piece of art is where you go, oh, I, I don't need more clarification. Like watching Get Back and the Beatles, mm-hmm. what I walked out of there feeling like was why did they not keep those cameras rolling for the next 20 years? I would watch <laughs> footage of John Lennon just walking around his house. Oh, absolutely. And, and you, I can't you'll never, believe... like, well, you'll never have enough of the photos and videos of people that you love and if, if strange and strangers you admire when they discover these caches of stuff, you know, and in a minute, I'm going to recommend a documentary to you and our listeners, but when you get access to something you didn't have public access to before, but I agree with you, just put a CCTV in, uh, in, uh, what is it called? The Dakota hotel or whatever, <laughs> yeah. like just run it all the time and making bread. Fine. Like, I just you wanted know, to see showing the movie Sean how to color. Do it. <laughs> I mean, you know, like what movie, like just, just a year before, two years before that same yeah. level of intimacy the snapshots and detail. of, uh, Paul with the, uh, with the black glasses. Best but it period. was so gratifying oh, to watch absolutely. that. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Because I because it solved problems for But it also gave you insight and it gave you context, right? It, it's it like, did. oh, you know, all the things we've learned over the years as quote-unquote Beatles fans is we certainly had a lot of asterisks on those. Maybe Yoko is not the person who quote broke up the Beatles, maybe. Like maybe, you know, maybe Paul's not the asshole that he got made out to be in the original movie. Like he was just trying to keep all these idiots happy. John's like a constant distraction. And, and Paul's just trying to be a professional and make music that the most popular band in the world would feel proud of. It was great. I was grateful because I got to put not all, I, I was able after watching that Ken Burns thing to kind of put everything that I had collected, all the little sh- seashells about Hemingway that I'd collected it, that were in desk drawers all over. <laughs> I was able to put them all into a shoebox and put it on a top shelf and go and put a little sticker on it that says Hemingway. And go, mm-hmm. that's, so, you know what? It may not be complete, but that's what I needed. That's yeah, all I no, needed. no. You, you've completed your collection, which doesn't mean you got everything that ever existed, but you got everything you need to feel like your complex, your uh, collection is complete. Yeah, there's no mystery that I need explained. I, oh, I, right. There's no, and yeah, there's no like, uh, oh, if I could only just understand what is his rosebud kind of thing. This was a thing that, that, that was plaguing my Uncle Jack until the day he died. mm and, you know, he was writing that book for the last decade of his life. And after he died, six months after he died, my cousin Libby sent me the book. And I started to read it and I knew, and I've read it and I knew, and it's better than I expected. But I knew that the central problem of Uncle Jack's life was trying to understand his father, my grandfather, mm-hmm. someone that no one knew and no one understood. And that my own father back in the 1940s said, fuck that guy and never made another attempt to understand his father. Right. If this goes great, well, what does that mean that it went great? Do I have insight into why this person is the way they are? And well, you should, he sure wasn't the first person who felt the need to like that, to feel whole, I've got to figure this out. And he spent the last, I think 15, maybe 20 years of his life trying to unravel the mystery of his father, who was clearly traumatized during World War One, mm. who was alcoholic, who died in the, at the Gates Hotel in Los Angeles in 1953 and was buried by the city of Los Angeles in a pauper's grave. And Uncle Jack, through the mists of time, through these onion-skinned poems mm-hmm. that my grandfather wrote, that hmm. he collected and 
all this research, trying to figure out his father. And the thing I never had the heart to say directly to Uncle Jack, but the thing that I firmly believe is true, is that my grandfather was a pathological liar. And Uncle Jack never... So he's trying to square um, history and facts and different things that he thought he knew, and some of those things were probably just not true? Yes. That's going to think... be, be a hard history to track down unless you're open to the idea that a bunch of this shit either didn't happen or happened in a way very different than you thought. He, my, Careful so what my, you ask for. <laughs> my grandfather was, you know, in the, in the trenches in World War I, and my uncle says that at one point when he was a boy, he was standing out in front of the family home, and he heard his father say to another man that he had bayoneted a German in the gut and that he couldn't get the idea out of his head. Or something. He, it was it was 1930, so he obviously didn't say I can't get the idea out of my head. But he he, he mentioned it in a way oh, that suggested Jesus. to my uncle that this was a, this this was a profound moment. And so for the last 15 or 20 years, my uncle was trying to contextualize his father's life in terms of this bayoneting. And right. what so he accepted on to, first principles, accepted that as the basis for a lot of. This understanding exactly. and that the hook, if you like, the hook that this whole thing hangs on in some ways. Exactly. Okay. The bayonetting okay. and a few other key stories like that. This, that, and the other. This happened, that happened, this happened. All kind of received wisdom. Mm -hmm. And like, and like he, comes like family lore or something. Like family lore, overheard mm -hmm. conversations. And he's trying to square that with the with the record and with what, right. the, uh, with the man. And you can't became. help but have a certain confirmation bias for wanting, like, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, you know, make a straw man here, but I know I'm guilty of this much more often than I'm not, which is like, I start with this, this, the hook, the peg, the whatever you want to call it. And then I start a kind of confirmation bias, start looking for things that prove that was true. And if, if, but if that, and again, not a straw man, this is just me, but like my MO will then be that I tend to reject a lot of stuff that didn't fit that narrative. And I don't think I'm the first person who's ever suffered from that. No, I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole thing about you got to prove everything. Right? I mean, it's like in journalism, like I'm not just here to interview you. I'm here to interview you and then find the, the veracity of what you said and didn't say. And then what that means, which is a lot more than being a stenographer. And what I tried to say to my uncle for the last 10 years was what if he just actually didn't bayonet a German? Like he was there. But he was an he was a lieutenant and he was training people how to throw grenades and bayonet. But mm -hmm. I don't I don't maybe, maybe something happened, but that story probably unintentionally I don't say embellished exactly, but that story probably grew somewhat in specificity and maybe even scope. Right. Over I mean, time from like, from, it could be, I mean, there could be some basis for that. It could be something that happened to a friend of his, a similar thing, but like, and it could also be like, you know, you watch too many more war movies. You start to think that every shot is a kill shot. You think that every bayonetting is a, is a death bayonetting and it's not, he might've just, he might've gotten in a fight with this guy and, and nicked him. <laughs> right. Well, I think if you're in trench warfare, I don't beats me, but. You think, you know, so you 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 then follow that. You're saying that the only plausible explanation is it either happened mostly like he said, or he made it up. No, I mean, who knows? The, right. the 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 point was that if I had based my understanding of my father on the fact that he had 
shot his pistol at a Japanese zero out the window of his airplane. So much. There's so much about that. I want to see a full on modern visualization of how that potentially could have worked. Well, shooting uh, from a moving plane to another moving plane, you pull out a a pistol, which I understand, even if that was a rifle, which would have been real tough. the story of shooting a zero out of the side of the sky with a forty-five is just amazing to me. Well, and the and and too good to check. On the very surface of it, if you're a right-handed person and you are the pilot of an aircraft in the left-handed seat, and your gun is in the shoulder holster uh, under your left arm, oh, absolutely. And you John, reach, I, read, I ride an e-bike, and I'm scared to signal a right turn because I well, need to keep would, my hands on the handlebars. He would have to have taken the gun out and transferred it to his left hand and stuck his left hand and out like the window. The co- but open the cockpit, uh, the, um, the, the, no, it's the a sliding window on the side. Oh, like he's going a, to Frisch's. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but so anyway, you could not, you could not write my father's autobiography or, trying to use that as one of the temples. Okay. That's and, probably fair. Yes. But of course, you know, my dad didn't experience PTSD and didn't die in a, in a, uh, in an SRO hotel either. Yeah. And so he's trying to make sense of it. And I, and I feel like, I feel like he, uncle Jack died without ever being able to tie up the loose ends. And my suspicion is oh, so frustrating. that it was impossible to do mm-hmm. because some of the strings were were complete fabrications or were at least like the strings were pencil drawings (laughs) it's like the 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 bayonet story it stuck in his young mind for a reason and maybe that's because it was told with a with enough passion that maybe it is real okay but but i didn't see anything in you know like i don't see any method at all (laughs) <laughs> yeah if you eat those prawns you'll never have to prove anything to me <laughs> uh what i wanted to recommend uh and, and i feel like i need to give a short opening statement here uh because it's so there's this new documentary two-part documentary about george carlin and i would like to stipulate that the 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 especially the early george carlin i think is one of the great things i'm not recommending this because i like george carlin I mean, the fact that I liked George Carlin got me to watch it. I'm not a huge fan of his, you know, ranting about politics period later in life. But just to get that all out of the way, I can really recommend this documentary um, because there's so much stuff I didn't know, so much stuff I haven't seen. I think his family participated in this and just the story about him and his hot wife and their relationship. It's and they talk to his daughter a lot. But, you know, it goes all the way back. And again, with the hagiography going back through like the, the basic story I learned was George Carlin who's like the crazy countercultural icon used to be this really straight comedian who blah, blah, blah. Well, that's, it's kind of true and it's kind of not. And there was an inflection point where he had to make a decision, but like he used to be, I don't know if you remember from like laughing, do you remember Burns and Schreiber? Sure. The guy from the Fritos commercial and the straight man, the guy with the big bushy mustache. He used to be in a double act with uh, Jack Burns before Jack Burns did a double act with Avery Schreiber. And they did some funny, slightly countercultural bits in like Skinny Ties, 1960s, 61. Uh-huh. Long story short, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, he does eventually turn to like growing a beard, but that's happening at a point when I think like, you know, his wife is pregnant. There's no money. Things are so bad. He's got a tour all the time. But I really recommend it because I don't know. I think it does what a good biography can do, which is really, it gives you some insight into 
Well, what I said, John, the context. Because, you know, it's one thing to tell a story, a story you've told a thousand times. I mean, but what you just described, what, what I'm going to describe, what, how many times, like in my case, I was trying to remember a story that I remember so clearly that's less than, happened less than 10 years ago. And it's when You Look Nice Today went to South by Southwest to do some stuff. And I was there to do a talk. And uh, long story short, all I remember is that Danny McBride knocked on our door one night and came in, the, the actor, and uh, came to a party in our room. We thought we were going to be in trouble for being too loud. And I finally put that out there to my friends. Does anybody else remember how this went? I think it was Scott and Adam in my hotel room. It turns out there were elements that were totally correct and so many parts that weren't it wasn't our hotel room it was somebody else's hotel room it wasn't jody hill it was this other person that was with him he was there and who was there and who wasn't but like my friend john gruber who's a, a, an alcoholic and a degenerate gambler he mm -hmm. remembered every single part of this and his wife backed it up so the thing happened but yeah. me telling that story over and over and i wasn't deliberately trying to embellish it i just misremembered it wasn't our, you know what i'm saying though like yeah. that's something so you that's, didn't ban it a german is what you're saying i don't i don't remember i or might have done did, that later when we went back to our it was with a butter knife <laughs> yeah well first we came german. out and i showed him a picture of my wife and then we played soccer yeah and uh you know and then all the one bomb goes off and and uh, you know he was the guy uh, with the mustache uh, he ran back to the other side you ban it a german except it was in portugal i did and it was in 1998 right and they said there's no such story. language as brazilian <laughs> and i said would you please pl play the pipes of peace and they said, sir, how did you get, how did you get this number?